Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. Chapter 5, 16 through 24. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would settle our spirits this afternoon and clear our hearts and minds from all distraction. And I pray that you would guide Ryan's words and that your Holy Spirit would help open our souls to what you would have us learn. Amen. Right, so we're going to be in... 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. One of my first ministry assignments and my very first full-time ministry assignment was to be the student pastor on an interim basis at a church in Winchester, Kentucky. And when you're the youth pastor at a Southern Baptist church, what that means is that all of the congregants have the ability to guilt you into being part of their pet ministries. If you've never been a youth pastor at a Southern Baptist church, then you haven't experienced that. But there's people that I would only refer to as ministry bullies and they'll go around and bully other people into being part of the ministry. I, honestly, I kind of was a ministry bully in the way that I would like recruit so aggressively that I think sometimes mom would have been a ministry bully. But there's just a way that recruitment sometimes works in some of those rural Southern Baptist churches. Unless you've been there, unless you've done that, you've never experienced it. Well, I was victimized by a ministry bully, and that landed me in prison for a day. It was a prison ministry and I wound up there. Really, it felt like I didn't have any agency in this thing at all. I just somehow wound up at the prison and Kurt was there as well. We spent most of the day or what seems like most of the day with one person. And, you know, I learned a few things from him. I learned that you really can't safely ask prisoners any questions. The only question he told us that it was safe to ask is, where did you catch your charge? And he said, you have to word it exactly like that, because if you word it differently, you're going to get into a conversation you don't want to be in. Please don't ask if anybody did it, because nobody did it. Only ask that one question, where did you catch your charge? Well, then we kind of got into deeper topics, and he started to share with us his faith in God. And after he had shared with us his story, shared with us his own faith. He 
said something that I'll never forget. This has been 20-something years ago, 21, 22 years ago. I haven't forgotten it yet, but he said, I know that atheism isn't true. If this life is all there is, then whoever made it needs their butt kicked. If this life is all there is, then whoever made it needs their butt kicked. And it has stuck with me all this time because it's, it summarizes for all of life what we all experience for some moments of life, that it's only worth it because of what comes after it, right? There's so many pieces of life that are like that. Pregnancy, ladies, would you agree with me? It's only worth it because of what comes after it, right? Parenthood, the difficulty of disciplining a child, it's only worth it because of what comes after it. It's true of suffering. Suffering is never pleasant in the moment, right? Hebrews says discipline is never pleasant in the moment. It's only worth it because of what comes after it. And today we're going to learn from this passage in 1 Thessalonians how we can prepare for the end of the world. How can we prepare for the end of the world? Because that's exactly what Paul's on about here. He had been to the Thessalonian church. He had planted this church. He was worried that false teachers would take over, would begin to teach false gospels. So he sent for a report to find out, hey, how are things going there? And he received such an encouraging report that he decided in response to that report to write 1 Thessalonians. Many scholars believe this is the oldest writing in the New Testament. And Paul just wanted to encourage these people that they're going through a lot of difficulty, but it's worth it because of what comes after it. And he wants to encourage them here exactly how they can prepare for what really is coming, which is the end of the world, that Christ is going to return, and we need to be prepared for that. We need to look forward to that. Look, Christ's coming immediately points to Christ's coming, right? Christ's first coming points to Christ's second coming. It's a breaking into the world of the author, Right? It's the breaking into the world of the one who made the world. Just as, just as when God said, let there be light, the heavens split in two, right? And the world came into existence. In the same way, when God said, let there be light, metaphorically, the heavens split in two and a new world came into existence. Jesus Christ coming shows us that the new world is here. It's not completed, it's not fully here, but it has been inaugurated. So when you want to think about the end times, you want to think about the final things, just look at the person of Jesus Christ. His first coming, his life, his death, and his resurrection all point to his second coming. And so Paul's pushing us to live in a certain way, to cultivate a certain attitude, to cultivate a certain character so that we're going to be ready for what comes after this life. And the first thing I think Paul would ask us to do is to cultivate an end-of-the-world attitude. Cultivate an end-of-the-world 
attitude. Look at verse 16. Rejoice always. In verse 17, pray constantly. Verse 18, give thanks in everything. He wants us to cultivate an end-of-the-world attitude, an end-of-the-world posture, an end-of-the-world way of being. And he uses these all-encompassing words, doesn't he? Always, all, everything. In other words, this is the entire comportment of a Christian believer. And what's the first piece of this? He says, rejoice always. Now, I don't know about you guys, but in my experience, it doesn't always feel like rejoicing is one of the options that I have access to, right? I mean, this command may as well sometimes tell me to become a squirrel, right? I, that's not one of my options. I don't get to be a squirrel right now. I'm a human being. And sometimes rejoicing feels just as alien to us as trying to become a different kind of creature. It feels like it's out of our control. It's like somebody asked me to suddenly become eight feet tall. It's not one of my options. But apparently for Paul, it feels like it is always one of our options because he tells us to rejoice specifically always. And this is the way that we cultivate this end of the world attitude. We rejoice and we do it always. And then he's going to give us two more commands that I think are going to fill this up and help us see how it's actually possible to rejoice always. What's the next thing he says here in verse 17? Pray constantly. Pray constantly. Now prayer is one of those things that for me induces a lot of guilt. Anybody else? This notion of prayer induces any guilt. How many times has someone told you an update in their life and you say back, man, I Thank you for updating me. I'm going to be praying for you. And then maybe a week later, maybe less than that, maybe just a few days later, you remember that you said that and also remember that you have prayed for them zero times. Man, it's it, so easy for us to become overwhelmed with guilt because of our prayerlessness. But I want to encourage us in this way that although those kinds of prayers are important and they're an absolutely essential piece of the Christian life. They're not the only kind of prayer. They're not the only kind of prayer. When Paul says to pray constantly, I don't think he means to be asking God to do things constantly. I don't think he means for us to be constantly making requests. I don't think he means for us to be constantly verbalizing prayers. I think Paul understands that there are going to be sometimes we'll need to use our mouths for other things than verbalizing prayers to God. So what can he possibly mean by pray constantly? I think what Paul means is that we can become those who are constantly in communion with God. Constantly dependent upon God. And constantly, we'll get to this next, thankful to God. Eugene Peterson said that waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. 
Waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. I think waiting is a form of prayer. This alert knowledge that God is up to something, right? This clear understanding that God is always active in our lives that leads us to wait for him before we plunge out in our own understanding. It's a way to have a prayerful kind of life. Dependence is a way to have a prayerful kind of life. What we can't do, we're never going to be able to do, is, like I said, be constantly bringing up requests to God over and over and over again all throughout the day, filling up every moment. What we can do is develop the kind of intimacy with God that makes it a reflex for us to immediately push our desires, our fears, our anxieties, our joys, our hopes onto him so that we're constantly dependent upon him. No matter whether we're living in a moment of great rejoicing or a moment of great difficulty. Pray constantly. How else can we cultivate an end-of-the-world attitude? Well, Paul says, by giving thanks in everything. Give thanks in everything. And I think this answers the question, how can we rejoice always? By giving thanks in everything. I usually say this at Thanksgiving, but I'll say it at Advent this year. Happiness is made out of Thanksgiving. Happiness is made out of Thanksgiving. It's hard to be thankful and um, lack joy at the same time. It's hard to be thankful and lacking in joy at the same time. Joy is the overflow of giving thanks. So Paul says for us to give thanks in everything. Now, it's easy for us to kind of twist this, right? It's easier for us to twist this into some sort of holy looking on the bright side, isn't it? It's easy for us to twist this into some sort of holy optimism where the way that we rejoice in everything is that we pretend that everything's okay by always looking for some sort of bright side. We're always looking, and that, my personality is looking on a bright side. Nothing in the world is easier for me than to turn bad things into good things in my imagination. So I don't have to deal with the fact that they're bad things. You with me? Very easy for me to do. That's just my personality. But Paul's not telling us to all become optimists in that way. What he's asking us to do is to take a level appraisal of reality and give thanks in the midst of it. Not because of the bright side of any particular situation, but because of what is always unshakingly true. He wants us to be dialed deeper into the truth, right? Not distracted from it by our own false interpretation, but rather he wants us to see a bigger picture of reality. He wants us to always have in our focus what comes after the moment, not just the moment itself. 
Not because the moment's not true, not because the moment's not real, not because the moment is not terrible, not because the moment's not painful, not because the moment is not heart-wrenchingly difficult, but because of what comes after it being even more real than what we're experiencing right now, what's tearing us apart inside right now. So we give thanks in everything because what comes after it is always true and always there and always coming. God's promise is neither minimized nor negated by the difficulties that we face. It's just made more necessary, right? So we cultivate an end of the world attitude by giving thanks. But Paul doesn't stop there. He wants us not just to cultivate an end-of-the-world attitude, but he wants us to also cultivate an end-of-the-world character. Cultivate an end-of-the-world character. He kind of changes gears here. He goes from our mindset to the way we actually conduct ourselves in the world. Look at what he says. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every form of evil. He's shifting to character now, isn't he? And what's the first part of this? He says, don't stifle the spirit. Another way to put this, I think, would be don't be numb to the spirit. Don't, don't be numb to what the spirit of God is doing and saying. And we're not exactly positive what Paul is trying to get across right here, but this could play out two different ways. Number one, we could stifle the Spirit by refusing to acknowledge the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives. This is the most prominent way I see this happen. We, we, we stifle the Spirit. or we, Another translation could be quench the Spirit. Another translation might say extinguish the Spirit. Anybody have one of those? Quench or extinguish? And what that means is we just continue to ignore the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit to the point that we are no longer able to perceive what God is trying to say to us as it aligns with his word. And Paul says, very frankly, don't do that, right? Don't ignore the Holy Spirit. But it could also mean saying no to things that God says yes to. That could happen in our churches, right? And we're tempted to do this more and more as younger generations want to make more and more changes. And we, we try to sort out what's good, what's right from what's trendy and what's false. And discern all the ways that things are changing to figure out what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, all those kinds of things. And it's very easy for us if we're trusting in ourselves, if we're not feasting on God's word and becoming more and more familiar with what God has declared that he wants for us to start to just lean into our preferences, right? And we may interpret someone else's obedience as an obscenity because it doesn't line up with our preferences. We assume it doesn't line up with God's word. And we can stifle the spirit in that way. But when we give ourselves to God's word, God gives us renewed clarity 
about his purposes, about his ways, about his character, so that we can rightly discern good from evil, right from wrong. And we won't quench the spirit in somebody else's life. Don't quench the spirit. Here's the next thing. Don't be smarter than God in verse 20. Don't be smarter than God. Look what it says. Don't despise prophecies. Now this word prophecy, man, it is a contentious word. There are people taking the idea of prophecy way to an extreme and they have prophecy conferences where they're training each other how to tell the future, literally practicing it, trying to help each other be better at telling the future. But when we look at the word prophecy, if we look at all of the occurrences of the word prophecy in the New Testament, what we find is, although sometimes this word can be used of speaking about what has not yet come, it's almost always used in relationship to the scriptures. Almost always the word prophecy is a reference to the scriptures. There are exceptions, but those exceptions are the occurrences that we're trying to interpret in light of the overwhelming majority of occurrences. Does that make sense? So there are some occurrences where we're trying to figure out what's happening. It's a spiritual gift of prophecy. And now we need to figure out what is this spiritual gift? What is God doing miraculously, supernaturally by the power of his Holy Spirit that has this name of prophecy? And what blows my mind, what absolutely blows my mind is that it seems like this supernatural, this utterly inexplicable act of God called prophecy is actually happening through the teaching of God's word. So that it's more of a forth telling. You've heard this before, I bet, than a foretelling. It's more of a forth telling than a foretelling. In other words, it's speaking forth the word of God rather than foretelling the future that God has in mind. And so the gift of prophecy should be that which we see on display when somebody comes into the pulpit to teach God's word, right? That this person is going to be equipped to make God's word clear to God's people so that God's spirit may do the work of sanctification in their lives. Prophecy. And so Paul says, don't despise prophecies. In other words, when we sit under the word of God, we need to not try to be smarter than God. We need to not try to be those who are analyzing God's words. And listen, of course, analyze the preacher's words, right? Don't get this twisted. But we don't want to analyze, overanalyze God's words and set ourselves above them. But rather, we want to set ourselves beneath God's words. To be the humble recipients of God's word who are formed by it. So don't despise prophecies but instead test all things hold on to what is good in other words be discerning right whatever we hear whatever we're taught we test it with God's word then he tells us stay away from every form of evil be righteous be righteous 
And then I think Paul wants us to cultivate an end of the world faith. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. What does that mean? Well, in all of our preparations for the end of the world, we can trust that God is preparing us now for what is to come. God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, God, through the ministry of the church, God, through his word, God, through the encouragement of your brothers and sisters, is forming you into the likeness of Christ. He's sanctifying you. He's doing that completely. He's bringing you to the place that you're prepared that your character is prepared, that your attitude is prepared, that your whole person is prepared to be part of Christ's new kingdom on earth. He will surely do it because he is faithful. I want to close with this passage from Mere Christianity. God will invade God will invade, but I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it'll be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what is the good of saying you were on his side then when you see the whole universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time to discover which side we have already chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance, and it will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is preparing us at all times for the end of the world. You're preparing us for the moment when Jesus will come to establish his eternal kingdom, when he will judge both the wicked and the righteous, and he will set in place his holy kingdom forever and ever and ever. God, I pray that you would give us a longing for that. I pray that you would build in us a deep desire to see his coming. And I pray that you would help us be those whose Every prayer would be, come Lord Jesus and come quickly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.